This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Daniel Hahn, and I'm so pleased to have been asked to chair this event with Michael Morpurgo. Michael's going to be talking about his book, and I'm going to ask a couple of questions, but we're going to leave lots of time for you to ask questions at the end, so do think about them. Uh, think of interesting, difficult questions for Michael while you hear us talk. Um, I, I'm just going to introduce Michael very briefly because... He, he is one of those, you know, he doesn't need any introduction and then you kind of introduce them anyway. So I'm going to try and do it quite quickly. But Michael, as you will all know, um, is a past children's laureate and one of the most loved children's writers in this country. You can tell this from the fact that we have a lovely sold out crowd this afternoon. Um, his very many books include, I'm just going to name a few of them, War Horse, of course, which was made into that extraordinary stage production and the film, The Butterfly Lion, Private Peaceful, which is my favorite at this moment, but my favorite changes quite often. But at this precise moment, Private Peaceful is my favorite. Um, Kensuke's Kingdom and Why the Whales Came, and so many other fantastic books. Many of the books deal with war and with the consequences of war. I remember I interviewed Michael for a, for a newspaper a couple of years ago, and we talked a little bit about what it was like growing up. Michael was born at the very end of the Second World War, so he didn't experience it, but growing up sort of in the shadow of that. Um, the book which Michael's going to be talking about today uh, mostly is a book called Only Remembered, uh, which is a book about war, and it's um, not a book that, it's not a story that Michael has written, but it's a really wonderful collection of reflections and pieces of prose and poetry. There's even some music, description of some music and some images, which were chosen by an extraordinary range of people um, and put together by, by Michael into this beautiful book, illustrated by Ian Beck. Even though it's not a book that Michael has written, it is a book that feels very much his kind of book. It is a thoughtful book. It is a book that is angry about injustice. It is a book that is that has a, a huge kind of generosity of spirit. These are all qualities you will recognize if you have read Michael's books or indeed heard him talk. It's going to be, I can say with some confidence that it's going to be a wonderful event because I've never seen Michael do any other kind of event. Please join me in welcoming Michael Morpurgo. So, um, to start from the beginning, I think, is the best. Um, why write books about uh, war, particularly with young people in mind? And I suppose the answer to that must be that writers have to write, have to write what they need to write, what they must write, what they care about. I, as just Daniel's just said, I was, grew up uh, just after the Second World War. I was born in 1943. I know I don't look that old, but I am. <laughs> 1943. So I didn't know anything about it at all, but I grew up learning about it. And I'm, I've just produced a book, this one called Half a Man, um, which is a story, a fictional story, which is why I'm telling you about it, because the rest of today's talk is not about fiction, really, at all. I told a fictional story about something that happened to me that was life-changing, that probably made me write about what I write about now. I'm now 70. 
and what happened to me and what I'm about to tell you happened to me when I was about five. So for all you people here who are a little young, this is quite important because what it's saying to you is that some of the very important, most important things that happen in your lives happen when you're really small and you don't forget them. In this particular case, uh, I had grown up playing in the bomb sites, doing all those things you did if you grew up in London after the Second World War. Very unaware of the effect on human beings. I knew what happened to the buildings, I could see that. But the people I didn't really know about until one day a visitor came to the house um, and it was a visitor I'd seen before and I always, I, in a strange way, looked forward to his visit and dreaded it at the same time. I'll explain why. This man had been in the fleet air arm, he was a pilot, and he had been shot down and as his plane fell out of the sky, the fuel caught fire and he'd been most terribly burnt on one side of his face and body so that he had two fingers on one hand, he had no ear, he had a, a, a skin which was very drawn across his face. Okay, I'm five years old and this guy's coming to tea again. And my mother says to me what she always said to me, Michael, don't stare. <laughs> and so when he comes in, he's called Eric Pierce, he's still alive, he's 94. And um, he comes in and I don't stare. Well, I do actually, I stare at his waistcoat, really hard at his waistcoat, and I count the buttons. And as we're having tea, I keep my eye on his waistcoat, but bit by bit by bit, you know what happens. The eyes go up, 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 and suddenly you're going. <laughs> Why was I doing that? I was doing that out of hero worship. This man was a pilot who had fought in this war that I'd heard so much about. These were the heroes then to a five-year-old boy. And he had this extraordinary shape on his face, mark on his face, that disturbed me, fascinated me. So I had to look and I had to look. And I wrote a fictional story about that. But I'm not going to talk about that. You, if you want to know more, you buy the book later. It's in, um, it's in all good bookshops, this one particularly, <laughs> at, at a very reasonable price. What I am here to talk about really is, is only remembered. Um, about the First World War. I think I was asked to do this because of one or two books I'd written about the First World War, War Horse and Butterfly Lion and Private Peaceful. It's unfortunate, but if you write books about subject like that, people think you are an expert in it. And I'm not. I'm one individual who is responding to the events of what happened a hundred years ago, and I respond by writing stories around it. It does not make me an expert, um, as many historians have already pointed out. Um, but when I was asked to write this book, the idea was to ask friends, family, distinguished people from all over, to remember what it was that first struck them about the First World War and has stayed in their mind. It could be a, a picture. My wife, for instance, wanted a picture by Stanley Spencer of mules arriving at a hospital, which she'd seen when she was very, very small and it had remained in her head as the iconic picture about the First World War. This hospital which looked a bit like a nativity scene was lit behind and these horses drawing their stretchers in. That stayed in her head. All of them were different and all of them were well, well thought through. Uh, I was amazed by what I got and what I thought I'd do today is just read you some of them, sing you some of them because there are some songs here 
as well. Um, and it'll give you some idea of the breadth of what is in this book and of how carefully the people involved thought about it before they sent in their pieces. Now, each of us was asked, me included, to select something. And I had the most wonderful event in this very place yesterday with um, a man called Barou, a French illustrator, who'd written a book called Line of Fire, which is an extraordinary book. You must get it. I'd rather you got that book than any of mine. It's probably the best book about the First World War that I've seen for young people. Utterly extraordinary. He found a document, I mean literally in the street, which was an exercise book used as a notebook by a soldier in the French army, a poilu, in 1914 as he was joining up. It is verbatim the words of this French soldier, which he has illustrated in black and white. And what's wonderful about it is its ordinariness. Here is no flannel. Here is no exaggeration at all. No attempt at making poetry of something. It's just this guy writing. Here's what he wrote, for instance, pretty well at the beginning of the war. This is my contribution to the book. Wednesday, 5th of August. This time, it's the great send-off. We're up at 0400 hours because parade is 0500 hours. After collecting our haversacks filled with bread and a rabbit cooked the previous day, it's time for farewells. All five of us shed a tear. After promising Madame Fernand that we'll stick together, we leave with heavy hearts. But our sense of duty makes us hold our heads high, and soon we join the ranks, ready for the off. Once the regiment is on parade, the colonel has us salute the flag, and he gives a rousing speech which is met with cheers. Then we march to the station with the band playing. Oh, 0700 hours. The train whistles and sets off in the direction of Paris. What a cruel irony. After a stop at Corbeil, the train departs again, but this time heading eastwards. At the stations, the ladies from the Red Cross bring us food and drink. We pass through Montereau, Romilly, and Troyes. Where are we going? Who knows? That's his words, simply translated. It's just straight at you, and it's the beginning of the war for this one man. He is now a song which some of you will know, um, composed at the time, sung at the time, um, at the beginning of the war, and it's about going off to war. Here's how it goes. Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day with a smile on his lips and his lieutenant pips upon his shoulder bright and gay as the train pulled out he said remember me to all the birds and he wagged his paw and went away to war shouting out these pathetic words goodbye goodbye Wipe the tear, baby dear, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. I'll be tickled to death to go. Don't cry, don't sigh. There's a silver lining in the sky. Bonsoir, old thing. Cheerio, chin chin. Napu, doodaloo, goodbye. Those of you who saw um, Oh What a Lovely War a year or two ago might know that song. So they're off to war. It's not chronological, this book, but I'm taking it in this reading as a sort of chronological order. There's a poem here. 
It's about the death of someone and how it happened. How ordinary deaths were sometimes. It's called Breakfast. And it's by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. We ate our breakfast lying on our backs because the shells were screeching overhead. I bet a rasher to a loaf of bread that Hull United would beat Halifax when Jimmy Stainthorpe played full back instead of Billy Bradford. Ginger raised his head and cursed and took the bet and dropped back dead. We ate our breakfast lying on our backs because the shells were screeching overhead. It's kind of an insight into sudden death. Here's, and it happens in this book, one of the very famous poems about the First World War. Um, it's by a Canadian who was killed, like so many of them, and it's called In Flanders Fields. And it's an important poem because it is about the pity of war, as Wilfred Owen put it, but it's also about the determination to continue to fight, which if you're in the middle of the war and you've been involved and you've seen your friends killed, is part of why the war goes on. It's called In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard, amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Some of you will know, and in a way I'm reading this because there are young people here who may know of this too, that in, at Christmas 1914 an extraordinary thing happened. Um, I know something about it because I read a letter. I went to Ypres in Belgium and I read a letter written by a, a, a German lieutenant back to his um, wife and it was something like this. Liebling. That's about the only German I know. Um, I'm writing to you with extraordinary news. Yesterday we climbed out of our trenches and we played football with the Tommies. It was a grand day. And then he says, to end it, you will be glad to know, Liebling, that the score was Fritz 2, Tommy 1. <laughs> and reading that I thought, well, nothing has changed. <laughs> it was an extraordinary moment. They did climb out of their trenches. This is not a fiction. They did it. They did it in several places along the line. And they exchanged gifts and they shook hands and they talked, they sang, and in the evening they sang carols from their trenches back and forth across no man's land. And then the hammer of discipline came down the next day, some were punished for it, um, and it was forbidden the next year to do it again. But there was just a moment 
just a moment when it might have happened that they all got out of their trenches and did that. And then the rest of the war, I love the, the as-ifs, you know, what-ifs of history. Would have been extraordinary. If they'd had Twitter and Facebook, can you imagine? <laughs> it would have stopped, that's for sure. The wonderful poet laureate we have at the moment, Karen Ann Duffy, wrote this poem called The Christmas Truce. I'd like to read it to you. Christmas Eve, in the trenches of France, the guns were quiet. The dead lay still in no man's land. Freddy, France, Friedrich, Frank. The moon, like a medal, hung in the clear, cold sky. Silver frost on barbed wire, strange tinsel, sparkled and winked. A boy from Stroud stared at a star to meet his mother's eyesight there. An owl swooped on a rat on the glove of a corpse. In a copse of trees behind the lines, a lone bird sang. A soldier poet noted it down, a robin holding his winter ground. Then silence spread and touched each man like a hand. Somebody kissed the gold of his ring, a few lit pipes, most in their great coats, huddled, waiting for sleep. The liquid mud had hardened at last in the freeze. But it was Christmas Eve. Believe. Belief thrilled the night air, where glittering rhyme on unburied suns treasured their stiff hair. A sharp, clean, midwinter smell held memory. On watch, a rifleman scoured the terrain, no sign of life, no shadows, shots from snipers, nout to note or report. The frozen foreign fields were acres of pain. Then, flickering flames from the other side danced in his eyes. As Christmas trees in their dozens shone, candlelit on the parapets, and they started to sing all down the German lines. Men who would drown in mud, be gassed or shot or vaporized by falling shells, all lived to tell, heard for the first time then, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, alles schläft, einsam wacht, Kariad. The song was a sudden bridge from man to man, a gift to the heart from home or childhood, some place shared. And when it was done, the British soldiers cheered. A Scotsman started to bawl the first Noel, and all joined in till the Germans stood, seeing across the divide the sprawled mute shapes of those who had died. All night along the Western Front they sang the enemies, carols, hymns, folk songs, anthems in German, English, French, each battalion quired in its grim trench. So Christmas dawned, wrapped in mist, to open itself and offer the day like a gift for Harry, Hugo, Hermann, Henry, Heinz, with whistles, waves, cheers, shouts, laughs. Frohe Weihnachten, Tommy! Merry Christmas, Fritz! A young Berliner brandishing schnapps was the first from his ditch to climb. A Shropshire lad ran at him like a rhyme. Then it was up and over every man to shake the hand of a foe as a friend or slap his back like a brother would, exchanging gifts of biscuits, tea, 
McConaughey stew, tickler's jam for cognac, sausages, cigars, beer, sauerkraut, or chase six hares who jump from a cabbage patch, or find a ball and make of a battleground a football pitch. I showed him a picture of my wife. Ich zeigte ihm ein Foto meiner Frau. Sie sei schön, sagte er. He thought her beautiful, he said. They buried the dead then, hacked spades into hard earth again and again, till a score of men were at rest, identified, blessed. Der Herr ist mein Hirt, my shepherd I shall not want. And all that marvelous, festive day and night they came and went, the officers, the rank and file, their fallen comrades side by side, beneath the makeshift crosses of midwinter graves, beneath the shivering, shy stars and the pinned moon and the yawn of history, the high, bright bullets, which each man later only aimed at the sky. Many of these great poets um, died, and one who I think maybe is my favorite of all of them is a man called Edward Thomas, who was an older man. He was in his 40s. There's an extraordinary exchange which I want to read you. You will know that much of what we know about the soldiers came from their letters back home. And he had um, a very dear friend at home called Eleanor Fargen, um, who was a writer. Good writer too, fine writer. And he wrote to her on April the 3rd, this letter. I shall read you the letter, then I'll read you her poem, which she wrote about that letter. April the 3rd, 1917. My dear Eleanor, I didn't discover the egg till Easter Monday, because I was taking apples out from a corner I had nibbled out. So now I must write again to thank you for an Easter egg. It was such a lovely morning, Easter Monday. Well, this is the eve and a beautiful sunny day after a night of cold and snow. So goodbye. May I have a letter before long? Yours ever, Edward Thomas. And then Eleanor Fargen wrote this on Easter Monday in memoriam to Edward Thomas, who had been killed. In the last letter that I had from France, you thanked me for the silver Easter egg, which I had hidden in the box of apples you liked to munch beyond all other fruit. You found the egg the Monday before Easter and said, I will praise Easter Monday now. It was such a lovely morning. Then you spoke of the coming battle and said, this is the eve, goodbye, and may I have a letter soon. That Easter Monday was a day for praise. It was such a lovely morning. In our garden we sowed our earliest seeds, and in the orchard the apple bud was ripe. It was the eve. There are three letters that you will not get. It's important when we think of this war not to think of just the soldiers, to think of the mothers, the friends, the relations left at home. And here is a poem 
lyrics really written by a man called Alfred Bryan imagining how a mother must feel with a boy over there in the war. It's called I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. Ten million soldiers to the war have gone who may never return again. Ten million mothers hearts must break for the ones who died in vain. Head bowed down in sorrow in her lonely years, I heard a mother murmur through her tears. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. Who dares to place a musket on his shoulder to shoot some other mother's darling boy? Let nations arbitrate their future troubles. It's time to lay the sword and gun away. There'd be no war today. If mothers all would say, I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. What victory can cheer a mother's heart when she looks at a blighted home? What victory can bring her back all she cared to call her own? Let each mother answer in the years to be. Remember that my boy belongs to me. When the war was over, it's about memories, and it's about visiting graveyards. I'm going to read you this one because it's about a Scottish soldier, and I'm in Scotland. And it's probably the most important song poem that I know. I would sing it, but I haven't the voice to sing it. Um, it's called No Man's Land, The Green Fields of France, and it's by Eric Bogle, who's a fantastic folk singer and poet. It doesn't matter not singing it because the poetry is so good. Imagine that he's in a cemetery uh, in France and he's found this grave of a private soldier, William McBride. And he crouches down and this, these are his thoughts. Can you hear me in all this horrible Scottish rain? <laughs> It'll only get worse, you know, if you, if you go independent. That's for sure. <laughs> Here it is. No man's land, the green fields of France. Well, how do you do, Private William McBride? Do you mind if I sit down here by your graveside and rest for a while in the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. And I see by your gravestone you were only 19 when you joined the glorious fallen in 1916. Well, I hope you died quick and I hope you died clean or oh, Willie McBride was it s slow and obscene did they beat the drums slowly did they play the pipes slowly did the rifles fire o'er you as they lowered you down did the bugles sound the last post in chorus did the pipes play the flowers of the forest and did you leave a wife or a sweetheart behind in some loyal heart is your memory enshrined. And though you died back in 1916, to that loyal heart are you always 19? Or are you a stranger without even a name forever enshrined behind some glass pane in an old photograph torn and tattered and stained and fading to yellow in a brown leather frame? The sun's shining down on the green fields of France. The warm wind blows gently and the red poppies dance. The trenches 
have vanished long under the plough. No gas and no barbed wire, no guns firing now. But here, in this graveyard that's still no man's land, the countless white crosses in mute witness stand. To man's blind indifference to his fellow man and a whole generation who were butchered and damned. And I can't help but wonder now, William McBride, do all those who lie here know why they died? Did you really believe them when they told you the cause? Did you really believe that this war would end wars? Well, the suffering, the sorrow, the glory, the shame, the killing, the dying, it was all done in vain for Willie McBride. It all happened again and again and again and again and again. I'm going to end on a note which is kind of easier in a way. Hands up those of you who know the really great writer illustrator called Raymond Briggs. Hands up higher. Uh, the snowman, hands up those of you who know the snowman. Now it improves, now it improves. That's interesting, isn't it? The writers, no one cares about them. It's simply the book or the movie. Anyway, he's a wonderful, sweet man. And he took a long while to reply. He was very concerned to get this right. And he replied with a most thoughtful poem, a new poem, one that he'd just penned because he thought it was significant to this story. Now, he, like me, grew up after the Second World War. Doesn't remember the first but he remembered something that was left over from the first. This is, this is the poem he wrote. And for those of you young ones who won't understand this to start with, keep listening, because you will in the end. Here's the poem. Aunties. When I was a child, there were always lots of aunties. They were everywhere. Some were real aunties, mums, umpteen sisters, dads, umpteen sisters. There was no end to them. Auntie Flo, Auntie Betty, Auntie Edie, Auntie Marjorie, Auntie Bertha, Auntie, Auntie Jessie. The list is endless. I won't go on except for Auntie Violet, my favourite auntie, killed on a bus in the Blitz. It seemed quite natural, didn't give it a thought. That was the way the world was, lots of old ladies everywhere. They were called spinsters. Some were rather quaint and looked down upon. A few were slightly mad. Then one day when I was grown up, it dawned on me, First World War. A million men were missing. Why hadn't I thought of it before? The men, these women, never met, never even had the chance to meet, all dead. These ladies were always kind, gentle and loving to me, not sour, bitter and resentful as they had every right to be. A million missing men, a million aunties. I think I'll pause there and we'll do some questions or something. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm just going to ask Michael a couple of questions because uh, I'm up here on stage and I have a microphone, so I'm allowed to do that. So I'm going to use my 
privilege just to ask Michael a couple of questions before we, we give you the chance. Um, and the first is, Michael, these, the readings you gave and the stories you write about, there is sadness and there is loss. And writing about war is a difficult and painful thing. But it strikes me that the fact of writing about it and the fact of remembering and trying to learn from these things, that's also, are you an optimist as well? That's sort of my question. Is there something optimistic in trying to understand this and trying to make other people understand Well, it? I think it's why, um, finally, these stories that I write are written and read, written for children and written and read mostly by children. Because the future is, is them, you know? And if you, if you don't pass on the stories that you grew up with, my meeting that man with a burnt face, um, those poems, those songs, if you do not pass those on to young people, then it seems to me they don't have the chance to do the changing that's got to happen. The hope I have and the optimism I, ha I have is invested in them. It's not in my generation. We've made a mess of it. And we seem to continue to do it. I think maybe we're too close to old Britain. But this lot growing up now, these are going to be, they're very international, they're very European, uh, and I like that. I like the fact that their base is broader, their understanding is broader. And if I can contribute with one or two stories, I think that's important because I do think if we don't know about the past, we have no way of comprehending the present and certainly no way of making the future brighter. So the investment is in you lot. Do you understand? <laughs> Pay attention. There's something for you to do. You said that you uh, grew up learning about the war, even though you hadn't lived through it. Yeah. Was that also through reading? Was that through stories? What, what form did it take, your, um, your learning about this? Or was uh, it if, just people? If I knew about, um, if by reading, it was through the most dreadful comics, which were around the place, which usually blackened every German that there was. And we were the good guys. We had really, really wonderful shaped faces with jaws like this <laughs> and, and really kind eyes as we killed people. Um, <laughs> And the other guys were, 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 you know, they all looked dastardly. Mm. So I was brought up with that. Of course we were, post-war, and I don't criticize people that it's how it was after the war. The enemy was still there in people's heads. But I tell you what I did have. I had a wonderful mother who told me about the world as it was, without bitterness and without anger. And I, I was very taken, I think, with her idea. She was half Belgian. Mm. I'm very connected to the First World War, bizarrely, through her, because, um, she was born on April the 18th, 1918. And it was the very day um, that the Belgian army climbed out of the trenches for the first time and retook a part of their own country from the Germans. My grandfather was a very patriotic Belgian, a man called Emil Camouts. He was the Rupert Brooke, really, of Belgium. He'd written wonderful patriotic poems at the beginning of the war about resistance to the enemy. So when this great victory happened, and I've been there and it wasn't a great victory, it was a few hundred yards, but believe you me, a few hundred yards advancing, not retreating, was very important to Belgians. They retook a bit of their land. And my grandfather was so thrilled, he decided to call his daughter, my mother, because she was born on that day, Kepa. And I grew up not calling my mother mum or mummy, but Kepa. It's bizarre. So this word... Kippa is very much in my head as I'm thinking of her now. Mm. And I've been to the place, and I've stood on the crossroads um, of the battlefield where it was. She never went there for some reason or other. 
so I'm very connected to that. And she would tell me stories, but they were not stories filled um, with hate or revenge. They were stories really about the pity of it. And I suppose it's from her and from later things that I, I read that I have concentrated my fire in books on the, the pity of war rather than the glory of it. I wonder whether that applies also to a lot of, a lot of children now. Most children in this country will have not have lived themselves through a terrible war in, in this country, but they may have, yeah. especially now that, as you say, it's much more diverse in terms of people coming from different parts of the world. We'll have families in other places, we'll have grandparents in other places who have had experiences and therefore do have some, some kind of connection to these stories, even if they themselves have never well, lived through them. I think the sad truth is that children today do have a visceral experience of violence and war. It comes on their televisions the whole time. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily, if they're very young, understand what it is. I'm not sure I understand what it is, but it's there in front of them in a way that it never was in the 1940s. You know, we read about it maybe, or you had comic thingies. These people see, just imagine, you're five or six years old, and what you're seeing is this bomb landing on a couple of cars, and then there's this white flash. And then, in a way, some people are talking about it as if it's a good thing. And you can take what side you like of the argument, but these children are being brought up with pictures like this. And sooner or later, they're going to know there were people in those cars, mm. and they're not all nasty people. There are mothers, there are children, there are old people dying in these buildings. We know that, and they will know it very soon if they don't know it already. So I think the war is being brought right into their their homes in a way it never was before, and all the more reason, therefore, to write about it so that their understanding of it can be broad and it can be deep, and so that when they do come to face the complexities and difficulties they're going to have as grown-up people, they've had this grounding. I think it's more and more important. There's your, your job as a writer, then, is to tell the stories of these people, tell the stories of people who are really experienced in this, and they're real, and they're complex, and they're emotionally and morally complex characters yeah. and stories. Can you say something about the difference between what I suppose are sort of fictionalized versions of these stories and what, is, uh, what appears a lot in this book, which is absolutely first-hand, like the Baku thing you, you, you referred to, people who are actually there saying in an unmediated way in their own voice, this is my story. Something about the difference between what, I guess, what you get as a reader from reading a story which is crafted by a writer. Well, I guess if you're reading a letter home from a soldier, uh, or a letter from a mother back to that soldier, or, or a wife, or whatever. You can have some sense of who that individual is, and you know no one is trying to pull wool over your eyes or make it different. And children pick up on this sort of thing very quickly. People are always trying to fool them. That kind of writing, the bit I read from Bahu's book, which is direct, which is, if you like, the word um, of a soldier spoken from the heart, but without no, what then he wasn't trying to do is to affect you, mm. to pull you in your heartstrings. He was just saying it how it was. And it's I just find a diary. It wasn't written to be read. Not fact, at all. As far as we know, not at all. And many, they weren't. You mm. know, they were just they were written down. This were these were your thoughts. Mm. And he wrote this, and it, we can now read it, and it's simply the story of a man going to war. It's an untrammeled account of it. Now I find find that as a fiction writer, much more powerful than what I do. Because I take truths like that, and I then 
tell a story around it. Now, for instance, I've just finished a novel which is coming out this autumn, which you can't buy, so I'm not selling it to you, so don't think I am. Hmm. Um, but you can write it down and make, it, make a note. And I just wasn't going to add that. Why do you have to ruin it? it was... I'm going to write it. Tell, tell us about this. But anyway, write it down as we talk. what's interesting is it's about the sinking of a ship called the Lusitania in 1915. Many of you will know about that. Many of the young people won't. But it was a huge, it was the second only the Titanic in terms of the size of the ship and the number of people lost. And it was sunk by one torpedo 12 miles off the south coast of Ireland, off Kinsale, um, in, uh, on May the 7th, I think it was, 1915. And all these people died. In 18 minutes it went down. It was the most appalling tragedy. And I was reading about it and reading about it and came across... Um, something that they found on the ocean three hours after the ship sank, which was the piano from the dining room, because they always had music during breakfast and stuff. This piano was floating on the ocean, and on it was a young girl. That's all I read. That's the truth. And what I did then was to extrapolate from that and make a novel. What will that do? What I think, apart from giving me enormous imaginative satisfaction to follow, which I love, it's like dreaming a dream when you're awake. What it will do, certainly, is enable an awful lot of people who would not know about the sinking of this ship or about the trauma caused by it. It's really a story about trauma. It's about dealing with pain. This child sees her mother drown. And it's about how she loses her mind, loses her memory, loses her voice, and is therefore a child completely alone in the world, and no one knows where she's come from when she's rescued. And it's about how she regains that memory. So it explores all sorts of things, but finally what it is, it's about how we deal with difficulty, how we deal with pain, deep, deep pain. Um, and since a lot of people have to do that, particularly those who've been to war or have been through stressful moments in their lives, which is an awful lot of people, um, we learn through fiction. Wonderful thing about fiction is that you can empathize more. If I can give you an example, I think it's, it's really important that you learn, for instance, the Anne Frank story, because we know that's true. It wasn't written for effect, same sort of thing. But it's also true that you can make a film, you can make a book, which tells the story of that. And I've done it myself, of the concentration camps. And you can shine a new light on it um, and bring it to the attention people in a way which may be simply a direct telling can't do. I don't know. I hope that's the case, because I'm a fiction writer. Otherwise, I've been wasting my life. Why did you ask me that question? <laughs> well, you've got away with it so far. You've done very well. Um, I think we should allow you to take uh, to, to ask some questions, actually. Um, we have almost 15 minutes, so uh, we have microphones. So uh, let me see some hands up, and I will send microphones to you. OK, we have one in the middle here. We'll take two uh, in the middle, and then directly behind you, and then uh, we can take one all the way up the back on the left-hand side. What was the most challenging... What was the most challenging... Where's this voice? <laughs> stand up voice, stand up voice. Yes. What was the most challenging book you've ever written? I like your trousers for a start. <laughs> They're really good. What's the most challenging book I've ever written? Well... The two things. First of all, every book I write is a, is a challenge. I thought as I got older it would get easier. You know, you, once you've learned to ride a bicycle, you'd simply be fine. Not true with writing. Every single book seems to 
be, and maybe this is because if you're, I think if you want to be a writer of books that mean something to you, you have to move all the time. You mustn't simply repeat what you've already written in some way or other. So each one is a challenge. But to answer your question, I would say it probably was uh, Listen to the Moon. I'm not just saying that because it's coming out. It's because it's in my head still. Mm. And I'm still almost living with the challenge of bringing this child to life from being almost dead, lying on that piano in the middle of the Atlantic. That was a huge challenge to me in terms of both research and in character development and, and all the rest of it. So I would say Listen to the Moon or a book I wrote called Private Peaceful, which is about the last night of a man's life. Um, and and it's so, such a serious subject. It's, it's, uh, have you read it or not? You have. What's your name? You're brilliant. Did you enjoy it? You had to say that. I paid you before, didn't I? <laughs> but that particular book, because you know how, how hard it is to read and how hard it is to finish. It was also very hard to write and, and a challenge because you're living through, through a, the pain of what is to come mm. all the time. So I would say that would be another one. Good question. And I still like your trousers. Thank you. Can you pass the microphone to the girl just behind you? You've got it already. No, no. You. Perfect. Thank you. And then up there. What inspired you to write books? In the first place? Yeah. What inspired me to write books in the first place? Well, I was a teacher in a primary school. Are there teachers here today? Any teachers? Hands up. Hands up. Would you stand up, teachers, please? Stand up. Stand up. No, 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 no. Do it. Do it. Could you give them a clap, all of you, please? Sit down, don't milk it, don't milk it. <laughs> anyway, I was a teacher and I'm very proud of it. It's maybe the best thing I've ever done in my life to stand in a classroom for eight years and do that teaching. It was extraordinary. The best way I found I could get 35 year sixes. Are you year six? In Scotland, what is that? Are you 10 or 11? You're going to be 10, aren't you? Well, when you get to be 10, you will be horrible. I had 35 10-year-olds, and I don't suppose the Scots are very different from the English in this, in my classroom. And the most difficult thing I found was to gather their heads, to concentrate on one thing altogether imaginatively. And the only way I found I could do this was by reading really great stories that I loved, not them, I loved in the first place, mm -hmm. and read it because I loved it. And that was the only way I found they just adored it. That was the best time. Three to half past three, and everyone should do this. I don't know about in Scotland. I mustn't speak about what you must do in Scotland. But what we must <laughs> do in England is between three and half past, everyone in primary school should be sat there listening or telling stories or making plays or whatever. That's what I did, and it was a fantastic time of the day. And when one day I was opening this book, and I thought it was a really good book. Actually, it is a rather good book, but they didn't like it. And I had these 35 little monsters looking out the window and picking their noses and stuff like that, and it wasn't working. So I thought to myself, read it with more, more passion. So I did, and that didn't work either. So I got to the end, and I went back to my wife, who was also a teacher. I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? They didn't like it. And she said, well, don't go on with something that's bored them. Dump it and tell them a story of your own. So I said, they're 10-year-olds. They'll kill me. <laughs> she said, were you frightened? I said, yes. But I did screw my courage to the sticking place, as one, one great writer said. And I went into the classroom at 3 o'clock the next day, and I said, excuse me, I'm not going to go on with that book I started yesterday. Typical. Typical. They just said, oh, sir, we liked it. <laughs> 
do not care if you liked it. I've laid awake all night making up this story, and you're going to hear it. So they sat there. Watch my face. I'm doing this just to you. Their faces started as 10-year-olds in England look when they really don't want to be there. Watch me. Like this. <laughs> And as I told my story, it stayed the same for a bit. And then this happened. Watch. This happened. In 20 minutes, I had them in the palm of my hand. And, 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 and at 3.30, the school bell went, and this is the best moment of my teaching life. They all went, oh, sir! And I thought, yes! <laughs> So, the answer. <laughs> so I got a taste, I got a taste, I suppose, for telling stories that seem to be able to, I suppose, to touch children. I'd like to see children wound up in a story, be it painful or funny, it didn't matter, but something that it meant, meant a lot to them. And I just got used to telling. And then one day, a head teacher came in and said, do you like the story? She sat in the back of the classroom and she liked it. She said, I want you to write it out for me and give it to me on Monday morning. So I did, and she sent it to a publisher called Macmillan, and I got the best letter of my life. Dear Mr. Morpingo, <laughs> I have just read your story. We liked it very much. Would you please write four more? And here's the good thing. We will pay you 75 pounds. <laughs> and I remember reading this letter and thinking, eat your heart out, roll doll. <laughs> Yes. There's a question Hi, over there. Thank you. Um, it's a very specific... Where are you? Where are you? I'm over here. Hello. 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 Um, it's a very specific question, but I'm a teacher as well. Um, I always started my school term with the story Kintsuki's King, which I really loved. And um, I heard earlier on this year that um, Anado, Hiro Kanadu, died. And I was wondering, did you base a story on his life? And if you did, you, were you aware that he knew about it? And have you had any communication with him? He's a Japanese soldier that hid out yeah, during yeah, the war. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm actually genuinely curious if... That's if, a ri uh, no I, one's ever asked me that before. I want to go back... I've got a brilliant story to tell you, which Fantastic. is true. Are you but listening? I want to go back to my... Because I have found yes. that teachers are not the best listeners. No. They do a lot of talking. <laughs> <laughs> here, here, here. Here's what the true story. I wrote... Kensky's Kingdom, okay? The book comes out. And as you know, it's about this Japanese soldier, in fact a sailor, but left behind on an island in the Pacific. I have to say this because they never read it, these people. They're ignorant. You, you're not. But the, the point is, this Japanese soldier from the Second World War, now 80, has to share the island with a 12-year-old boy like you, only much nicer. And they have to share the island together which neither of them particularly like. So they sort of fall out, and it's all a bit difficult, and it's about their relationship, and they're coming together over the story. And at the end, I have to explain this, there is a letter. And the letter at the end um, comes from the relation, the surviving relation, a nephew of this Kensky, who'd been on the island. And he wrote to me, this guy, saying... I am the nephew of the real Japanese soldier left behind on the island. What's amazing is that you have written a character, Kensuke, just like my great 
uncle or whatever it was. Uh, and he'd written a biography of him. Have you read the biography? It's out there. It's translated into English. And it was such a lovely thing to have, 10 years after I'd written the book, a letter from Japan, thinking that it was all right to make a fiction out of it. And I knew, all I knew was that there had been three such soldiers left behind, but I didn't know really anything much about any of them. I simply thought it was such an extraordinary thing. That's it. So the, it turned a full circle and became a true story in the end. And I love it when things turn out to be true after you've written them. <laughs> I mean, with Warhorse, it happened again and again and again. The number of times I've had letters now from people who said their great uncle or their great grandfather, whatever, went off to war with a horse and thought the horse had died because lost touch with it and then found it as pulling a milk cart up in Nottingham after the war. Unbelievable stories like that. I mean, truth is much, much more interesting than fiction. Thank you for your question. Let's have uh, one more. There's one all the way over there. Go with a hand up. All the way at the end of the aisle. If you weren't a writer, what would you be? If I was? If you weren't a writer. What ah, that's what I wish I had been, not a writer. <laughs> it, it would have been great. Do you know what I wanted to be? When I was um, 10, hands up those of you who are 10 again, just the boys, not interested in the girls, put your hands on girls. Put your hands up if you're a 10-year-old boy. Okay. You may feel like it, sir, but you're not. Um, Ten-year-old ten -year boy. I wanted to be, when I was ten, I wanted to play rugby for England. I'm sorry to say this up in Scotland, but I wanted to come to Murrayfield and smash the Scots. Okay? Luckily for Scotland, I was never picked. And I never, never achieved my ambition. If I had a, my, a serious chance now of doing something different, and I would like it, but you can't because you're just too old. But I would love to do what my daddy did and what my mum did. They were both actors. And I would love to act. I think the telling of a story on stage, this is really, I suppose, since the whole Warhorse play has been on, seems to me to be as powerful as the telling of a story in a book when it's done really well. And I'd love to have had the courage to have done that when I was younger. I didn't have the courage to do it. But I, the, the making of plays seems to me to be wonderful. I should have been um, Robert Redford, really. <laughs> but it never happened. So. I cry in my sleep sometimes about it. But <laughs> Any more questions? Or are we, um, we don't have more? very much time. Will you, are you going to sing us a song before I, we I'll before finish, we finish with one more question. Then a, OK, let's uh, have one last quick question. There's, some, there's one right on the aisle here. Um, Um, yes, uh, just wondering, uh, the First World War is mainly focused in literacy and in film and in play. Where is it? Uh, just here. Yeah, do you want me to stand up? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, the First World War is mainly focused on li in literacy, film, uh, theatre, etc. On the Western Front, I was just wondering why this is, considering that the First World War was, mainly, was also focused on East Africa, the first shot of the war was in East Africa, mm -hmm. and other places like that. It's only the infantry soldiers, mainly, or not always, of course, on in the first in uh, the trenches. I'm yep. just wondering why that is. That's a really good question. I can recommend to you immediately a book, um, not written by me, but by a wonderful writer called Morris Gleitzman. It's called Loyal Creatures. And it's written about the Australian light horse who were in Gallipoli. 
So there are books about other, um, other spheres of, of the war. And of course, there are books written, this is very important to know, by people from other countries who took part in that war. One of the great problems we've got in this, in this country is we see it not only as a trench perspective, but also as a British perspective. I was with this French illustrator yesterday, Barou, and I don't think he knew this, but I pointed out to him that we had lost something between 800,000 and 900,000 soldiers in the First World War, most of them on the Western Front. I think that's because it was mostly there. And this was closer to England. The news came from there more often. I think it was all that. The songs were about that as well. So you're quite right to point it out. But he didn't really seem to know how many the French had lost. Well, I looked it up. They lost 1.8 million. 300,000 of those were civilians because, of course, the war was fought on their soil, and that's something which we forget. Belgians and French had it on their doorstep, as it happened in Africa and it happened in Turkey. It, people, the civilians, were killed in large, large numbers. But I think the perspective of other countries is really important. In this book, for instance, there's quite a lot about Indian soldiers. Uh, it's not generally appreciated how many Indian people from the Indian subcontinent came across here to fight in that war. There were more Indians fighting in that war than all the Scots, Irish, and Welsh put together. There were 1.2 million came across, and they're hardly ever mentioned. So you're right about the spheres of the war, where you're also, part of your question is about the breadth of it, and about our knowledge and understanding it. We don't really know about the Russians in the First World War. Their losses were massive. It truly was a world war. So you're your question's important. I think it is the geographic closeness of the Western Front. You could hear the guns from Kent. You really could. And they were coming back and forth by train, and the proximity of the wounded coming back. I think that began to create the stories, create the poetry, and all the rest of it. But it's a very good question. But do try and find that book by Maurice Gleitzman. It's the best book ever written about a horse in the First World War. And I don't like to say that. <laughs> Are we going to have a song from you, Michael? Yeah. Lock the doors. <laughs> Listen, uh, hands up those of you here who, who went to see the um, play of um, War Horse. Higher, higher. I want, I, want to, I want to examine this. OK. Put your hands down. Hands up those of you, and I want honesty, please, Scotland. Hands up those of you who've read the book. That's not, that's not good enough. <laughs> that's not quite as many. How many of you have seen the film? Okay. If you saw the play, which to my way of thinking is um, truly an extraordinary, um, an extraordinary event, really, um, you'll know that there's a song at the beginning of it and at the end of it, which is really what... It's really what the play is all about. It is about remembering, and it's also about reconciliation. Uh, and I thought I'd sing you that song if I can get it out, because I find it quite emotional. But I'll do my best, blow my nose, and grow up. <laughs> it's called, the song is called Only Remembered. Fading away like the stars in the morning Losing their light in the glorious sun. Thus would we pass from this earth 
and it's toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered for what we have done. Only the truth that in life we have spoken, only the seed that in life we have sown, these shall pass onwards when we are forgotten, only remembered for what we have done, only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. These shall pass onwards when we are forgotten, only remembered for what we have done. Who'll sing the anthem and who will tell the story? Will the line hold? Will it scatter and run? Shall we at last be united in glory? Only remembered for what we have done. Only remembered, only remembered, only remembered for what we have done. Shall we at last be united in glory, only remembered for what we have done, only remembered for what we have done. I'm, uh... I'm really sorry we're going to have to stop. We are a little over, and I apologise for running late. Uh, if you want to come and meet Michael in the signing tent, he's going to be going over there now. But before you go one last time, please thank Michael Morfogo for a fantastic hour. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.